Hello and welcome to The Long Line. We are a multidisciplinary team focused on improving the care of older patients who visit the emergency department which we work in. You can contact us via email at thelonglie@outlook.com. That's thelonglie@outlook.com, or follow us on Twitter at thelonglie1. Today's episode is on having courageous conversations. My name is Ian Tyrrell and I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in frailty and today I am joined by... Hi, my name's Alice Holt. I'm an emergency medicine consultant at Royal Stoke. Hi, I'm Sarah Kelt. I'm a palliative care consultant at Stoke. And my name's Eleanor. I'm an FY1 doctor at Royal Stoke Hospital. So I'm going to start this podcast by reading a short extra excerpt from a book called The Book About Getting Older and it's by Dr. Lucy Pollock. And it talks an awful lot about having conversations with older patients. And I think it's a good point to start this conversation that we're going to have today on. Um, Mrs. Walton, Irene, do you mind me asking something? She turns to me again and frowns a little as she nods. I go on. Are there times you go to bed at night and you just wish you just wouldn't wake up in the morning? Irene's face breaks into a huge smile. She looks directly at me. That's exactly how I feel. Irene and I now start having a proper conversation. I ask her how long she has felt this way. Felt that she would like to close her eyes and slip away. Oh, about six years maybe, since my husband died. You must have been married a long time. 59 years, she smiles proudly. I bet you miss him very much. Was he a nice chap? Oh, he, he was the best. We talk about where she met him at a dance just after the war. She tells me about their travels and when he was still in the Navy and his kindness. I ask Irene to tell me what makes her smile. She loves me. She loves seeing her daughters who live locally and pop in most days, and her son comes down from Kent sometimes. She enjoys visits from her grandson and his fiancée. She sleeps well, too well, really ha- half the day as well, and eats enough. She treats herself to a thimble full of sherry at 6.30 every day. Irene's absolutely clear that she's not depressed. I've just had enough. I've had a nice life and I'm tired and I want to be with Tom. I ask Irene if there was a tablet she would just end it all, would she take it? Oh no, she tells me, looking quite cross that I've suggested sh- such a thing. I wouldn't do that. My family would be upset and it's wrong anyway. No, I can wait my time. But well, every night I get into bed, I blow a little kiss to all my children and I hope I'll just, you know, she flutters her fingers. Now, I think that's a really nice way of kind of... um entering a conversation about kind of advanced care planning and um, DNA or discussions. For me, I, coming from the background of being a physio for, for 10, 12 years, I never really felt prepared to have these conversations. When I transitioned into the role of ACP, there was nothing throughout my training um, as a physio or even my experience as a physio that really prepared me. So I felt quite vulnerable when, when trying to attempt to have these conversations. I don't know how you felt as a, as a, as a newly qualified junior doctor, Eleanor. Um, so I think obviously coming from medical school, we have an incredible amount of communication skills training, which has really been quite valuable. Um, however, I don't think it can really set you up for, when you actually have to do it with a real life patient, with a real life family that are there waiting for you to give them answers or or let them know what's going on. Um, so I think it, it does have its challenges, definitely. I'd like to think I've had a good setup from my training from university, but 
it depends so much on, you know, the family you're speaking to, the circumstances around it. And, you know, every time you have to go and have that discussion with a family, there's always that, oh, how are they, how are they going to take this? Is, is this going to be a good conversation, a positive conversation, or, or will I struggle a bit? And, and hopefully the family will be okay at the end of it. So then if we talk about kind of like a, 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 a do not attempt resuscitation form or a respect document, when should we discuss it? And, and when is it appropriate? Um, so I suppose that there um, are some situations where actually it's important and it's urgent that we discuss particularly about resuscitation immediately. So it may be immediately apparent that um, someone has a, a condition that we have limited treatment options or that they um, are at risk of not surviving. And we may need to make that decision quite quickly. And that obviously that does push us into that discussion um, at that point in time. But I would also say that there are situations where it perhaps isn't immediately urgent, but we have an opportunity to have that discussion. And if we have... Um, patients where we have indications that their condition is progressing over time. Perhaps they've had recurrent admissions to hospital. Um, perhaps they're um, not fully recovering each time they get admitted. Their, their current attendance at ED is actually, it offers us an opportunity to have that discussion um, if it hasn't happened already. And so I think in that situation, it's it's really good if we can take that opportunity to at least introduce the subject. It may be that we don't get to the point of fully completing a form or necessarily making the DNAR decision immediately, um, but actually introducing the topic and the, the issues has value in itself. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, a lot of people have um, come up to me and had the argument that they don't think that um, ED is the right place to have these discussions. Um, and I don't agree with that argument at all. I think that ED provides a quite unique opportunity, really, to, um, as Sarah said, to start those discussions. Um, number one, I know it's been different um, through the pandemic, but usually when um, a frail older person comes into the emergency department, they'd normally have a carer or um, or um, a relative with them. And that isn't always the case on the wards. Um, number two, um, you, you, we often do have quite a lot of information, especially um, now that we can look on iPortal and look on GraphNet. Um, and we have um, rooms, so private quiet rooms that we can go to to talk to relatives, particularly um, which aren't always available on the wards. Um, and also, you know, I, th I think it provides quite a good opportunity um, for um ACPs and um, more junior members of staff to um, sit in on um, these conversations because there's always going to be a senior around when they're in the emergency department, and um, I think that I think that it's definitely something that we should be doing um, as emergency medicine um, healthcare professionals. And I I just want to bring it back to a, a situation that I was involved in. Um, right at the start of my kind of ACP career working on on one of our met, um, frail elderly wards where we'd gone round myself and one of the registrar had went around kind of a whole two bays of patients um, and we'd had kind of a, a lot of discussions regarding resuscitation um, 
status. We came to one gentleman who actually was a retired surgeon um, who was suffering from kind of a, a mental health crisis and had been over many years. And one of his main issues was he didn't want to die without his dignity. Now, it transpired on the ward round that we got, it It was quite a busy ward round and we actually filled out, out of, I think, nearly 10 patients, we filled out eight do not resuscitate forms. And when, whilst we were seeing this gentleman, we got distracted by our consultant. Um, and unfortunately, we, we didn't fill out or we didn't get to that part of the conversation. Um, unfortunately, the next morning when we came on to shift, he was mid-cardiac arrest. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away in a way he didn't want to he 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 died without his dignity so that to me kind of rams home the importance of actually one when you have an opportunity to speak to a patient it's about trying to engage with that conversation and find out what their wishes are um, and actually kind of don't be afraid to have that conversation I think sometimes we we fear having that conversation but I suppose my question to to you guys is 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 how should we approach that and how do we broach this top top topic with people especially if they don't want maybe don't want to or are not prepared to have that conversation um so it i mean it is it, it is a difficult conversation and i have to say um it, it perhaps it, it gets easier with experience but i still have that thought how is this conversation going to go? How How is this person going to take it? And that's absolutely natural. And it's actually, um, it is, you know, you may be talking about things that are difficult or upsetting to that person. So it, it is, um, you know, within the normal human experience, really, for them to be, to find that upsetting, to find it difficult to talk about. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's been done wrong or badly. These are difficult topics and in our the society that we live in actually it's not all that common people don't talk day to day about um dying or necessarily about their future um and and that sort of thing um i'm not sure that there is a a standard way to introduce things um i i am involved in communication skills uh teaching and i'm it's probably um, best not to give you a lecture about communication skills, but I think there are a few tips, um, pro probably three things um, from teaching that and from having watched a lot of people practice these communication skills. Um, I would say that the first thing is to try to give yourself a little bit of time to prepare yourself before going in to have a conversation about whether it's about resuscitation or placing uh, limitations on escalation of care try to find out a bit about the person themselves, about their condition, and try to anticipate what questions they may ask you. Because um, there's some topics that will um, perhaps come up that they're universal, you know, um, decisions about resuscitation or whether uh, someone will be appropriate to, to go to ITU um, can occur in any health condition. Um, but if they have something like um, cancer, you might be considering whether treatments like chemotherapy or radiotherapy are appropriate. If they have motor neurone disease, it might be whether they might require um, artificial feeding or non-invasive ventilation. So try to prepare, try to anticipate what might be asked. The next thing is to try and make this part of a bigger conversation. 
Um, I think when particularly discussions about um, resuscitation go badly, um, it's it's often when it's um, kind of plonked into a conversation without much preparation um, and it can come as a big shock um, for that to be suddenly discussed. Um, so try to make it part of a bigger conversation about this person's health, um, their future um, with this condition and thinking about the wider range of uh, treatments and, and interventions that, that might be considered. And my third point, um, the most important bit um, when we do communication skills and particularly talking about difficult things or bad news is always to ask before you tell. Um, I find that um, I, I always, um, I would always use this when I'm speaking to people, um, always try to find out what this person's understanding is of their condition and their situation and what their expectations of the future are. And that gives you a much better idea about whether you are um, pushing at an open door. It may be that they actually have a full understanding and, and make the decisions for you, or it may be that their expectations of things are completely different from your understanding of the situation, but it lets you know what your starting point is and it allows you to judge how you give the information from there. Yeah, I, th I think um, that's kind of nailed it really, Sarah. I think what what I try and do is exactly that, kind of um, get an understanding as to um, what the condition is, um, any kind of prognostic features. Um, and then sometimes how I broach the conversation is um, uh, talk about quality of life um, and and how they feel um, their quality of life is. And um, I learned that really from um, a really personal experience, actually. So my nana um, was 90 when she died. She was living with dementia for five years before that. And I used to um, go to her every Thursday and do a bit of shopping for her and whatever. And for the last five years of our life, I always used to say to her when I left, I always used to say, bye, nana, I'll see you next week. I love you. She's like, well, you might not love, but remember that I love you. Um, and I think she she taught me an awful lot because she said to me this isn't my life now Alice this isn't how I want to live and I've lived my life and so I I try and broach it try and broach it that way now um so talk about their quality of life and then as you say you 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 often do find particularly when um you're talking to quite frail older people um you'll you'll often find that they're quite open and relieved to have that conversation. Um, and that's certainly, in my experience, certainly something that that I've found. And, and once you've once you've got that background and you know where you are in that conversation, it's much easier to to lead on from there and then to have discussions about ceilings of care um, and respect forms. Um, and I, I think, you know, like you said, everything seems to be covered there. I think from um, the perspective of a junior doctor, when you're on the ward round and you're going around with the consultant and they say, oh, perhaps one of you can have a discussion with the family about this. It seems to fall very much on on your shoulders. Um, and I think in order to, you know, actually prepare the time to have that discussion um, and sort of a practical approach for possibly new doctors um, going into this. I tend to, you know, do those important jobs on the ward that need to get done. So I've got time, I've got uninterrupted time, I can give my bleep to someone else. Um, and unfortunately, being a doctor during the pandemic where visiting has been very limited to the hospital, a lot of these phone, um, conversations have taken place over the phone. Um, that in itself can pose its own, uh, its own challenges as well. But I think it is really important to give that time to that family member um 
you know, allow them to ask questions, etc. And I think, as Alice has said, I think a lot of people are, they're almost relieved when these, um, when these topics are brought up. Um, I can think of a, a gentleman that I looked after fairly recently who said, you know, I'm in my mid nineties. I live in a nursing home. You don't think I haven't thought about death. And that actually was just such a positive experience for me because we were actually able to fulfill that man's wishes. He didn't want to come into hospital. He wanted to go back to his nursing home where he was comfortable and he was fully aware that, you know, this could have been a, a terminal event for him. And that's something which, um, you know, was an incredibly positive experience for myself, someone who's quite passionate about um, providing good end of life care for the family and the patient as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's about making time to have those discussions and, you know, getting that setting right and which can be difficult during the uh, COVID pandemic. <laughs> So I think that brilliant little segue, Alan, that brings us on to respect forms and kind of when we're filling these respect forms out, I think they only, can only be filled out well if you actually consider the whole experience, uh, whole setup of what this patient wants. So when we're writing a respect form or kind of talking about respect form with a family, what should that include? Um so I think um, when when I'm doing respect forms, uh, what I would try to do, if it's possible, is actually to take the form to the bedside to look at with um, the patient and their family, if they're there. Um, and actually, there may be some bits of it that you can complete fairly easily, like the demographics and the person's diagnosis. But then the next section looks at um, whether the patient has got any other advanced care plans or lasting power of attorney, what their views are about how how their treatment should look and what their kind of life priorities are. And so it's really helpful to actually take the form and to go through that with the patient, if possible, uh, when you're asking about what's, what they uh, most want to avoid, what they most want, um, what's most important to them, to actually use their words if they, you know, if they've got any particular, um, if, they, if they give an answer that is what's what's their key priorities. When it comes to the box at the bottom, which is looking at um, kind of treatment decisions, medical interventions, I find it helpful in my mind to group that into um, three separate groups before I go in to have the conversation. Um, so that might be a group of things that we've already discussed or decided that wouldn't be appropriate for this person. So it often when I um, receive a referral for a patient, it may well already have been decided that they wouldn't be going to ITU or HDU. Um, so those things might already have been decided. I would have a group of interventions that I think actually would still be appropriate and helpful for this patient. Um, and then in the middle, perhaps a group that I'm not sure about and that I want to discuss with the person and then talk through those things and come to a decision about which things um, we still would consider and which things we wouldn't want to. It's fine if we don't decide about everything. And actually, people may may just not know. They may want to um, wait and see what the you know they may not be able to anticipate what the situation is that's coming in the future. When when you're completing the respect form when, when it's about medical decisions, 
do try and think about um, the terms that you use, the language that you use and, and making it clear, not just within the hospital, um, but it, when that person is perhaps discharged from hospital, whether that what you're writing is meaningful. Um, so ward based care might mean something to us. It probably doesn't mean anything to a GP. It doesn't help the GP or the district nurse in making decisions um, for that person when they're in the community. So try to make it as useful and specific as you can do, but, you know, kind of clear information on that form. Yeah, I think I'd echo that. I think it's really important to be as specific as you can be because I think we've all had occasions where we've seen people through ambulance triage um, um, who come in um, with end-stage dementia, very, very frail, who've got a respect form um, that isn't really necessarily filled in very well um, and we could have saved that patient um, a distressing visit to the emergency department. So what I find useful is to give examples. So um, not for um, an intravenous line, not for bloods, um, consider oral antibiotics. Um, um, and then, um, as Sarah said, things that you would consider. So just blanket putting not for hospital escalation I don't think is helpful because um, particularly um, if people are in um, residential homes and they fall um, then they're going to have to come to hospital if they've got a um, a fracture for example um, so I think it's useful to put in when it would be appropriate so if they're experiencing distressing symptoms that um, can't be managed um, at home or if they fall and they've got a suspected fracture that needs treatment with splintage or reduction or, or whatever but also to put in things that definitely wouldn't be appropriate so not for um, artificial feeding not for bloods not for IV lines I tend to find that that that's um, um, a much better way of filling them in, but it it needs to be inclusive with that patient um, and with their family as well, so that they know they know what's been um, written down about them. Can I just ask what would, what do you think about those patients who have a respect form who maybe live in kind of like twenty four hour residential care, who um, have certain things kind of put on it, but then maybe kind of are on a, um, an anticoagulant and have falls. And then obviously guidelines say that they, they need to have a CT scan. I know it's, it's, it's difficult and it's a patient by patient basis. I, th I think, I think that is quite a difficult one. Um, I think the one thing that we need to understand is that a respect form is not a legally binding document. Um, and that people have, the people, for example, who are looking after them in 24-hour care wouldn't necessarily have the thought process that I'd have. So if somebody rang me about that patient, then I would say, really, what, what, why are we doing that? Because the chances are if, if we do come to hospital and have a CT and we find something, then um, it's not likely that we're going to do anything about it. I think what I probably would do is um, if that patient did come to hospital is I would, I would assess whether they need to be on that anticoagulant or not. Um, I think that's a turning it on its head. That's a much better way of, of looking at it. Okay. So we've, we've talked a little bit about kind of um, the, I think demedicalizing topics and, and, talking in a language that both patients and, and relatives can understand. What if these conversations are not kind of received well? How do we kind of approach it from that point of view? So I, I guess, um, as we've said earlier, these are difficult things to talk about and it may be 
um, subjects that this um, patient or their relatives have not thought about or spoken about before. Um, and that can be really hard. And people are, are very individual, actually. So um, there are situations where people are not um, are not happy or are frightened, perhaps, about having these conversations and what it may mean. I think in that, if you get into that situation where a conversation about these things isn't going well, the most important thing is to always remain calm. And, and that perhaps sounds easier said than done, but actually calmness um, is it's it, very helpful in these situations where there is emotion. Um, if you are calm in the face of someone who's very upset or angry or finding things difficult, um, then it, it allows time for them to express themselves. Um, and it is very helpful just to listen to what they are concerned about, try to find out what it is that makes them upset about that. But also if you become upset or defensive, it tends to escalate um, the, the emotion within that conversation. So do try to remain calm. Try to allow them time to talk about what it is that that's upsetting. I think uh, people are worried about apologising sometimes in healthcare. They feel that it somehow um, lays them open to, to criticism. But I think it, it is um, actually perfectly reasonable to apologise for someone um, you know, if someone's upset by the conversation that you're having. Um, I guess that um, it's helpful, and you may have done this earlier in the conversation, to try and find out about how comfortable the other person is in having that conversation and whether there are subjects that are just off limits and whether there might be things that you can discuss that are okay but perhaps some no-go areas. And I think one of the common things that um, that I see is um, people saying, I, I don't want to know my prognosis. I don't want to know when I'm going to die. But what might be okay is to discuss the future in broader terms and perhaps in hypothetical terms. So um, rather than saying, this is going to happen to you, um, what, are we, what will we do? But perhaps to say, what if if this situation were to occur, have you got any thoughts about what you would want? Um, so to have a more hypothetical situation and to try um, to, if it's possible, um, not force people to discuss things that they don't want to um, want to discuss. And it isn't always possible because there may be crucial things that we do need to cover. But actually, there isn't any reason why a person needs to know a specific prognosis, for instance, um, and we can still talk about the future without um, going into that. But it is it is difficult. And um, to some extent, it does it does get better with experience. But I still have conversations that um, that I find hard um, and where um, perhaps we don't get to the um, the conclusion that um, I was hoping to with having the conversation. Um, I think it's important to ensure that you've got your team around you and that you've got people who can support you in that. And that that's how I would um, often tend to manage that situation if I have a conversation um, that I don't feel went as well as I wanted it to. Um, I would go back and speak to other members of my team about um, what had happened and just be able to bounce ideas off them about those things. Okay. 
So we've talked an awful lot about kind of having conversations with relatives and having conversations with patients and the emotions that they obviously encounter themselves. What I want to do now is just try and tease out kind of the emotions that they may and the impact they may have on ourselves as practitioners. I think one thing that I wasn't prepared for when I came into an ACP role is, is kind of having all these difficult conversations and, um, there was one patient in particular right at the start of kind of my ACP journey where uh, I was working it over a weekend and a very sick gentleman came in. We didn't really know a diagnosis. We just know, knew he wasn't get, getting better. We were treating him for all sorts of weird and wonderful things to, but weren't able to do some of the investigations because of his behavior. And despite being on maximum doses of kind of double strength antibiotics, he, he wasn't improving. And obviously because it was COVID times, the only contact we had with the family was with his wife who was elderly via a telephone. Um, and obviously they were shielding at that time. And as he gradually became iller and iller, it came to a, a Monday morning where the consultant who was on, who was a new consultant for the week, wanted to keep on treating him for another 48 hours, but it was clear that um, he was actually, you know, dying. And in the stage of, I think we it he agreed with what our plan was that we would refer to palliative care team and I think you Sarah came down to 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 the ward and we got a syringe driver but then it kind of very much escalated that actually it had gone from maybe days to 2 hours and in the end we we had to get him into a side room and our nurses showed great love and affection and shaved him and we had just been given iPads and we actually facetimed his wife because she couldn't come in because their son was just about to have a, a child and just as we finished that kind of FaceTime we kind of I left the room and he passed away and then that hit me like a train and I'm not I'm I'm your stereotypical bloke I, I, I drink beer and I watch football and I, I get angry I don't get sad but that went through through me like a brick um, and I'm wondering if you've had any similar experiences when you first actually got into doctoring properly uh, out of medical school that you could share? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, I've had to have a few of these conversations now. Um, and I think it can be exhausting. It really can um, emotionally and, and physically as well. Um, and I think I do try and spend a lot of time afterwards sort of reflecting on how that conversation went, because I think that there's always time to improve and definitely as myself as a, as a brand new doctor in this as well um I think sometimes um sort of the things that I struggle with the most is perhaps differences between what the what you can have a chat with the family about in terms of actually we're not sure if you if this patient will get better we're giving them the treatment but what are your thoughts about do not attempt resuscitation you know we'll continue treatment but if we feel things aren't working we'll perhaps move towards steps where we can make this patient more comfortable and oftentimes you know the family have understood that and appreciated that um, but as you know an F1 doctor I felt sometimes a divide between that discussion that I've had with the family and perhaps discussions with my seniors as well I mean I can remember one instance where we had a patient with pneumonia who quite clearly was was dying um, 
and you know the nurses will you're you're there on the ward the nurses will tell you I think this patient is dying I don't think they're going to get better they seem very unwell and that's sort of put on you then um, and so you get the family in and have a have a chat with them um, and then I'd sort of escalate to the registrar and it's like oh well it's the weekend perhaps we'll carry on treatment and see how they go um, over the weekend and sometimes I've worried that perhaps we're not doing the right thing for that patient and whilst we could be continuing on active treatment and giving antibiotics etc perhaps we can start you know, um, prescribing those anticipatory medications, getting that DNAR in place. And and so those are the situations where I felt, I felt sort of tied in the middle really, because I, you can see that the family can see that patient is unwell. And yet we're, we haven't necessarily made those steps in place for if this patient deteriorates suddenly, we have a plan in place and this patient can die with dignity. Um, but I do think, you know, going back to, um, going back to what you've said, it is, it can be very emotional. Um, I, I think as well, when you've got a list of all the jobs that you've got to do on the ward, you know, you have this discussion with the family and you sort of take a breather, but then you've got other work to do. You've got other patients to look after. And often for me, it's when I get home um, and perhaps I've burnt the toast or I've done something like that. And that's when it thinks that's when it seems to hit me almost. Um, I remember patients I've had that day or patients that were very unwell, patients that have died um, in, in recent weeks, etc. And that almost seems to be where I digest things really um, and it, it can be difficult I don't know whether it will get easier over time whether you get used to it over time um, but I think it's really important to uh, you know you're there for the patient and um, but you need to look after yourself as well. Um, I'll just pick up on that point I, I definitely think it does get easier um, as you get more experienced. Um, I used to go through every single patient in my head at night um, before I went to sleep but that's not to say that we are bulletproof. Um, I think I've been a doctor for 21 years um, and um, I've had a lot of these conversations and I thought that I was quite emotionally resilient. I thought I was all right, actually, um, until one day you're not. And then in the second, however many waves we've had of this pandemic, um, when people are dying behind closed doors and there's been no relatives allowed and the way that you communicate has been very very different I found it really really hard um and I thought I was okay until one day I wasn't I was walking home from work and just couldn't stop crying and didn't stop crying I don't think for about three days um and had to take some time off work and you know originally felt quite guilty about that until um I actually had a proper discussion with my um long-suffering husband um who made me realize that you know I was burnt out and burnout is actually a real thing and you do have to look after yourself because if you don't look after yourself then you're not in a position to look after your patients um and I think it's really important to when people ask the question are you okay then not only if you're asking the question do you need to mean it but you if somebody's asking you that question it's important to be honest with your answer as well because you know I, I know if my friends were going through what I went through then um I know that if they were going through that and I asked that question then I'd I'd want them to be honest with me because I'd like to be there to help them so um I do think it's important and I think it's important to have ways that you can process the information like Alan has said she likes to make toast and process things that way. I like to go for a swim. Um, and if I if I can just go up and down, up and down, up and down, and that's 
that's when I can process all the information. But um, it definitely it definitely does get easier. It, you don't go through each individual. Well, I don't go through each individual patient like I used to. Um, I don't know whether you want to say anything, Sarah. Yes, I think um, I, I absolutely agree with, with what Alice has said, that it, it's important to look after yourself, but it's also important to look after your team. Um, for me, um, I, I think things have um, got easier and I suppose that working in palliative care, um, I go into work with a different expectation from most other people working in medicine. Um, so there is some preparedness um, for the fact that we're going to be talking with people who, um, who've who got uh, limited life expectancy. Um, but how I would um, tend to deal with it is um, by talking with members of my team. And I'm, I'm very fortunate actually in the team that I work with that we do tend to touch base um, several times per day and we offload on each other um, in our office about what's happened, about what conversations we've had and about what's been what's been difficult, what's gone well. Um, and if you can if you can find members of your team that you can you can do that with and have that relationship, I would definitely recommend it. Um, I think the other thing to be aware of is that um, different things can be difficult for different people. Um, so what's hard for one person um, might not be for, for another. And um, so some of the things I think um, other members of my team would perhaps say that it's it's younger people um, who um, they find it most difficult, most emotionally difficult Um for me, it's perhaps um, it, it's been someone that I recognise a similarity to a member of my family, um, but it does really depend. So I think when you're if you are supporting your team, um, be open minded as to what you know, what's difficult for them. It might not be uh, the same as it is for you. I, th I think that's really important. And I think what this pandemic has certainly shown me for us in, in A&E, we've, we've been through the five years I've been working in our, in our department, we've been through some pretty rough times. Um, and we've always taken it with a pinch of black humour and, um, you know, the, the, the main kind of response to how are you is uh, living the dream. And I think an awful lot of people are, are becoming more open Um I think certainly I've I've written kind of pieces about kind of my own kind of mental health and my own journey. And I think that's opened up conversations and I think people are beginning to talk more. And I think with the difficulties that we've endured over the past, not just professionally, but in our all our own personal lives, that it's becoming more important that, you know, we, we deal with sick people day in, day out, and that's going to have a, its its effect on us. So I think we need to support each other and make sure that if you are asking someone if they're okay, it's that you almost ask them twice because you'll always get, yes, I'm okay the first time, but actually going back that second time, you might get a, yes, I'm okay, but, but, and that but is what the start of a conversation and that conversation and that peer support can be so instrumental in, 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 in making people feel healthier, happier, and actually more supported in the workplace. Thank you for listening to The Long Light. We hope you have found today's episode informative and enjoyable. If you would like to contact us, please email thelonglie at outlook.com. And please follow us on Twitter for all the latest news. Our handle is thelonglie1.